0: It's a blessing to be able to preach this morning. Um, somebody came up to me and said, I thought maybe you were preaching because of what you were wearing. I thought, like, yeah, that's true. These are my preaching pants. I only wear these when I preach. And uh, so I'm grateful for the opportunity and uh, glad just to uh, be able to, to share with you this morning. The, uh, the tragic and traumatic experiences of this woman's childhood years would have given most people more than enough grounds for a lifetime of self-pity and bitterness. Her father died when she was very young, leaving her to be raised by her mother and a grandmother. And through the carelessness of a doctor when she was just six weeks old, she was afflicted with lifelong blindness. Yet in her autobiography, she wrote these words, she said it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. The doctor who destroyed her eyesight never forgave himself for the mistake that he made, and he ended up moving out of the area. But in his patient's heart, there was no room for resentment She said, if I could meet him now, I would say, thank you, thank you, over and over again for making me blind. The thankful heart that she possessed throughout her life until she died at the age of 95 is reflected in the first poem that she wrote when she was just eight years old. She wrote, oh, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. So weep or sigh because I'm blind. I cannot, nor I won't. You know who that was. Francis J. Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer. She was someone who understood thanksgiving. She knew that proper thanksgiving wasn't a matter of the food on the table. It wasn't about turkey and dressing and pumpkin pie, although I could do without pumpkin pie. If you give me pecan pie, that would be good. Rather, she understood that proper thanksgiving is the result of a right heart before God. And when your heart is right toward God, your circumstances are secondary. However, if you're anything like me, we often struggle with having a proper heart attitude. We let our circumstances dictate our response rather than choosing to be thankful. Throughout the Scriptures... We are encouraged to develop a thankful heart. And So this morning, I don't have a, uh, one particular passage of Scripture that we're just going to look at and kind of work our way through. Uh, this is going to be more of kind of a topical approach to the idea of what it means to be thankful and to offer proper thanksgiving to God. And so this is my premise. This is my main point that I want you to get in this message this morning that is, as thankfulness saturates Scripture, so thanksgiving should permeate our hearts and overflow from our lives. Everywhere you look from beginning to the end of the Bible, you find this notion of giving thanks to God. It's everywhere. There are some places where it's more Prominent, more prevalent than others, but there's hardly a place in Scripture where you cannot find the idea of giving thanks to God mentioned in some way, shape, or form. And so, as thankfulness saturates Scripture, so thanksgiving should permeate our hearts and overflow from our lives. But for that to happen, there are some things we probably will have to do. And The first is this, that we will often have to replace forgetting with remembering. We'll have to replace forgetting with remembering. Like the Israelites, we have a propensity for forgetfulness. We forget how God has delivered us in the past when we face present problems. The Israelites were like that. And there is one particular place that's referred to many times in Scripture that illustrates the forgetfulness of the Israelites and serves as an illustration for us as well of how often we forget God when problems and difficulties arise and face us. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites have just gotten out of Egypt. The ten plagues have been sent by God, culminating with the death of the firstborn and God's deliverance of the Israelites through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and uh, that blood being displayed on the doorposts of their homes so that the destroyer passed over. The Israelites were released from their Four hundred years of bondage in Egypt, and not only were they given their freedom, but they were given all kinds of stuff from the Egyptians to take with them, as they said, please get out of here. And they went on their way. And they journeyed and made it to the edge of the Red Sea. And suddenly circumstances changed. Because Pharaoh came to his senses, Scripture says, and it occurred to him he had one of those, you know, kind of V8 moments and he said, "What have I done? Why have we let these people go? We're going to chase them down and we're going to bring them back and we're going to make them our slaves again." And so the Israelites saw the Egyptians coming in the distance and they've got the Egyptians behind the Red Sea on the other side and they are in a panic. And look there in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That event is mirrored in a passage from Psalm 106. As the psalmist looks back, to that event, Psalm 106, verse 6 and following, it says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. You get the, the point here that the psalmist is about to say, this is not just about those people in the past and what they did, but it's about us, too, and how we act like them Verse 7, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Why have you brought us out here? Why have you brought me this far and now everything's going to fall apart? We are doomed. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had that kind of attitude towards God? Oh, yeah, sure. You've done great things in the past, but now look at where we're at. Now look at the situation I'm in. It's hopeless. How often do we forget God when problems arise? We also have a tendency to forget God Not only when problems arise, but when we are rolling in prosperity. In Hosea chapter 13, God speaks through the prophet and again recalls these days after being freed from Egypt. In Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 4, God says, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. When they were filled, and their heart was filled up, therefore they forgot me. It is. uh, far too often a characteristic of our lives that we forget God and His goodness and His mercy and His steadfast love and His kindness rather than remember all the benefits that He has given, all the ways in which He has led us and shown us faithfulness. And so if our our hearts are going to be saturated with thanksgiving And overflow with thanksgiving into our lives, we need to learn to remember. Someone has said, thanksgiving is possible only for those who take time to remember. In the New Testament, we find the example of one who remembered. And maybe it was because he didn't delay in giving thanks that he remembered to do so. And so often that's part of our problem is we put it off. This man right away responded to the goodness of God and gave thanks. Luke chapter 17. You have that great story of 10 lepers. And how the Lord healed them. Luke chapter 17 starting in verse 11 says on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them turned back. When he saw that he was healed, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. There are a lot of lessons you could draw from this story. But the point I want us to take from this is that there was one who remembered. One who remembered to come back and give thanks. One who didn't delay but did so right away. He remembered the source of his blessing. It wasn't that he was so smart, it wasn't that he had sought out great medical attention. It wasn't that he had changed his diet, it was that God had done a miracle and he knew that God, by his power, through Jesus, had healed him. Several times in that passage, we find that God is the one who is remembered as the source of the blessings that had fallen on this unworthy man. And his leprosy is really just kind of, for us, a physical sign, a physical equivalent in a way of our sinfulness that permeates us and makes us unclean before God. And how often do we forget to give thanks to God for having cleansed us and made us whole through faith in Christ? This man returned right away. As soon as he saw that he had been cleansed, he came back. And not only did he remember the proper source of his blessings, but he gave the proper response to his blessings. In thankfulness, he offered unashamed worship. Luke tells us that he came back praising God in a loud voice. Praising God in a loud voice. I don't know about you, but so often when we gather for worship, if I would stop and think about it, I would have so many things to give thanks to God for, and it ought to cause up, to well up within me, this notion of praising God with a loud voice, but so often we kind of hold back. He didn't hold back at all in his unashamed worship. Praising God in a loud voice And in thankfulness, he came and threw himself at Jesus' feet in unashamed humility. He fell on his face, Luke tells us, at Jesus' feet. Someone has said that proud people are rarely thankful people. This man knew that he had nothing to be proud of, but everything to be grateful for. God had done a great work in his life. And so he came offering to the Lord unashamed worship with unashamed humility. That is exactly what we find to be encouraged of us in Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, exclamation point. Serve the Lord with gladness, exclamation point. Come into His presence with singing, exclamation point. Know that the Lord, He is God, Exclamation point. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Exclamation point. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Exclamation point. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. If we could learn the lesson of this one who remembered, to remember the proper source of our blessings, that everything we have comes down from the Father of lights, the one who gives us every good and perfect gift, and that we would render to him the proper response of unashamed worship and unashamed humility, to praise him with a loud voice, to fall before him in gratitude. To know that He is God, we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. To remember, as verse 5 says in Psalm 100, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures for how long? Forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. If remembering that doesn't create within you A grateful heart, I do not know what will. There are so many things that we need to remember to give thanks to God for. Years ago, I came across this poem by a man by the name of Clifford Lewis. I have no idea who Clifford Lewis is, but this is a great poem of all the things, or at least some of the things, not all of them, but some of the things that we should remember to give thanks to God for. It says, for all the gifts that thou dost send, for every kind and loyal friend, for prompt supply of all my need, for all that's good in word or deed, for gift of health along life's way, for strength to work from day to day, I give thee humble thanks. For ready hands to help and cheer, for listening ears thy voice to hear. For yielded tongue, thy love to talk, for willing feet, thy paths to walk, for open eyes, thy word to read, for loving heart, thy will to heed, I give thee humble thanks. For Christ who came from heaven above, for the cross and his redeeming love, for his mighty power to seek and save, for his glorious triumph o'er the grave, For the lovely mansions in the sky, for his blessed coming by and by, I give thee humble thanks. That's a great place to start on developing a list of things to remember for which we ought to give thanks to God. Another place you can turn that helps you in recalling things for which to give God thanks is Psalm 103. We're not going to read through the whole psalm, just the first few verses, but I would encourage you at some point to read through all of Psalm 103 as the psalmist there lists off item after item for which we ought to give thanks to God. But Let's just start with the first few verses of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. If you want to develop a heart that is saturated with and overflowing with thanksgiving, learn to replace forgetting with remembering. Another thing you may need to do if you're anything like me is this, to have a thankful heart, replace grumbling with gratitude. Replace grumbling with gratitude. It is amazing how some people can find the one little cloud in a clear blue sky. It is amazing to see the person who is able to find the one weed in a garden of flowers. And so it is with us, though, many times, isn't it? We gripe and grumble and complain and we fail to see all that we have to be thankful for, to be grateful for. Uh, we are prone to be grumblers rather than those who give thanks. Many times we, uh, we tend to see what it is that we're really looking for. A grateful heart has the ability to see those things to be thankful for. And the more grateful you are in, in your heart towards God, the more you see the blessings of God around you. Henry Ward Beecher, a long time ago, told the illustration of, said, if you were to take a, a bowl of sand and mix within it particles of iron, and you were to, told, to have me to try to fish those out, he said, I might not even be able to see them with my eye, and certainly I could not pick them out with my clumsy fingers. But if I took a magnet and took it through that sand, it would draw out all those particles of iron. And he said, so it is with the heart that is grateful. The heart that is grateful towards God tends to see those things around it that should engender thankfulness. An attitude of gratitude sees the blessings and draws them out from places from where they were previously hidden. And oftentimes, the more grateful you become, the more blessings you will see. That is the, the power of a grateful heart and its perception of blessings. But what about a grumbling heart? A grumbling heart is just the opposite. A grumbling heart only sees those things that are wrong, that are deficient, that somehow fall short of what we think we ought to have or what we feel like we deserve. The great example of that comes again from the Israelites back in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 11. They have been uh, out of Egypt for some time, probably about a year or so. And we come to... This passage of scripture, Numbers chapter 11. And leading into it, we are reminded they, the Israelites had so much to be thankful for. Uh, they had been freed from their slavery in Egypt. They were being guided by God to the promised land through the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night. God had already provided for them in miraculous ways by giving them water from the rock, by sending manna. And yet, they found something to grumble about, something to complain about, some perceived deficiency in God's provision for them. And what we see in this story is that a little bit of complaining goes a long way. It tends to start small and then expands. Look there in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now you would think that 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 little bit of complaining and God's judgment on that complaining would have been enough it would have gotten their attention i mean fire from the lord that goes out and consumes some people uh, you would think that would that would wake them up but no we come to verse 4 and that little bit of complaining that started in verse 1 now moves to the rabble among them verse 4 says now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving And the people of Israel also wept again, and they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. What well, started small and then moved to the rabble soon infected the whole camp of the Israelites as they complained to God. It's, a, it's an incident that is talked about at another place in Psalm 78. I won't have you go there, but basically the psalmist says of this incident that the Israelites has, had this attitude. They said, oh yeah, sure, but God gave us water from a rock. And he sent us manna from heaven, but we want meat. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? We don't think he can, and this is what we really want. And God, you're not being fair to us here. Well, the scripture tells us that uh, the anger of the Lord burned against them for their grumbling, ungrateful hearts. Skip down to verse 31. There are some other important things that happen in between, but we're going to skip to the end of the story. Numbers 11 says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. Okay, Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. It's roughly the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. So, two cubits is going to be how much? Three feet. Imagine this quail stacked up, three feet deep, about a day's journey all the way around the camp. That's a lot of dead birds. This is what happened. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. If you look down, you may have a little footnote in your Bible there. It says a homer equals about six bushels. So the guy who got the least gathered about 60 bushels of quail. That's at the low end of the scale. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth-Hateabah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth-Hateavah, then the people journeyed on to Hazaroth and remained at Hazaroth. Kibroth-Hateavah, the graves of craving or the graves of greediness. When you have an ungrateful heart that is animated by a craving for something else, something that God hasn't given you, That craving may lead to the grave. If you can't be grateful for what you have, God may decide to punish you by giving you what you crave. If you think that somehow, Lord, if I just had this job, then I would be content, then I would be happy, then my needs would be met. And yet you fail to give God thanks for the job that you have. All you can see are the deficiencies in God's present provision. So God may decide to give you what you crave, only to find out that that job requires much more than you thought of you. It may require more travel. It may take time away from your family. There may be pressure to compromise your walk with Christ. It may not be all that you thought it was going to be. Maybe that bigger house may be the thing that you think, if we just had that, we could be comfortable, we could be happy. Life would be good, only to find out that the payments and the upkeep are draining you of all your resources, and it's become more of a burden than a blessing. Sometimes what we crave Becomes a means of God creating within us a thankful heart by causing us to see the emptiness of it. The Israelites somehow were unable to be content with God's provision. If we're going to replace Grumbling with gratitude, we have to learn to become content with God's good provision for us. Paul told the Philippians, he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Notice the little word Paul throws in there, I have learned to be content. Contentment is not an automatic, it's not a given, it's often something that we have to learn in life. Paul says, I have learned to be content, whether I have a lot or a little. We need to learn to be content. And one way that we can cultivate contentedness and learn to be grateful comes from a passage that Paul sticks in at the end of his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Well, I'm not going to go through it in detail, I just want to read these verses and give you a few things that can help us learn to be content with God's present provision for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6, Paul there says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, who have a craving for something more, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If we would learn to be content, we need to understand some things here that Paul points out in this passage. One is we need to recognize what is really valuable. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Learn what's really valuable. Realize, too, the impermanence of possessions. Paul says, we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. No matter what we may gain in this life, however many things God blesses us with, understand that it is just here with you for a little while. You will take nothing with you when you leave. Understand the impermanence of possessions. That will help you learn to be content. And then Paul says, remember the difference between necessity and luxury. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. In America, it is a very fuzzy line that exists for most of us between necessity and And luxury. A lot of the things that we think we need to have, have to have, ought to have, are things that the majority of the world lives without and gets along just fine. But somehow we think we deserve it, we ought to have it, our neighbors have it. (laughs) Thus, we become discontent with God's present provision. And so we grumble, we complain. Why can't I? If we would have a grateful heart, a heart that is saturated with and overflows with thanksgiving, then we need to strive to replace grumbling with gratitude and learn contentment. As I said at the beginning, I am grateful for the opportunity to preach this morning, it uh, has afforded me the opportunity to to think through Thanksgiving again, and it's something that I've needed to do. One year ago today, on this date, November thirtieth, twenty thirteen, Cheryl and I arrived back here in Illinois in response to what we believed then and are still convinced today was the clear call and leading of God to be here, to minister to our parents as they might need our help. And I would be less than honest if I led you to believe that uh, that this has been a year filled with uh, overflowing gratitude and a heart saturated with thanksgiving. It has not always been that way for me. I'll let Cheryl speak for herself on that, but I know for me, I haven't always been grateful, thankful. I have struggled many times to put into practice the content of what this sermon is. I have often failed to remember God's past and present provision. I have often grumbled About the perceived lack of provision by God. But God has patiently borne with us. So I'm so grateful He hasn't dealt with us like He did those people who griped about wanting meat to eat and, (laughs) you know, struck them dead. In His grace and kindness and patience, uh, he has borne with us in our forgetfulness and in our grumbling. He has worked with us to help us grow in gratitude. We have been reminded often of what Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. He says, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Be thankful in everything. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. We haven't always been that way. And I know that we will struggle even in the days to come. But that certainly is what we want to be. We want to rejoice always. And be in prayer often. And to learn to give thanks in every circumstance. God has been kind to us materially. I have a list at home that I started keeping when we made the decision to leave Oklahoma and to come here of the material things that God provided for us along the way from helping us find a house to rent that was affordable for us On down through all the many gifts that people have given to us and provided for us, the work that God has given to me since we moved here. God has been so faithful materially in so many ways, and yet there have been many times when I've grumbled and I've had to ask for God's forgiveness for my ingratitude. Spiritually, God has provided for us over and over and over again in this past year. We've received encouragement through cards, through text messages, through emails, through Facebook, and those things have come from friends and family, both in Oklahoma and here. God has blessed us with this church family. Before we moved, we had the, had the idea that this is probably where we would, we would come to worship and to serve, but I just want you to know how grateful we have been for the way in which you all as a church family have ministered to us and encouraged us and come alongside us, how you have supported us in this past year. God has blessed us over and over again by reminding us of the promises of His Word, which He has used to both rebuke our sinfulness and strengthen us in our weakness. God has been good. And in this past year, God has deepened within us an appreciation of the gospel, And for believers, the gospel is at really the root of thankfulness, is it not? I'm reminded of a verse that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. A verse that doesn't even mention thanksgiving, but it really is at the heart of what Paul says. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul reminds us that if God did not withhold from us the greatest gift of all, his son, who by his death on the cross redeemed us, if God did not withhold his son, Will he withhold anything else that we need? Uh, There is probably no greater verse that should engender within us a thankful heart. In the gospel, we can remember God's past, present, and future provision for us in Christ. we of all people ought to be thankful. We never have reason to grumble about God, God's lack of provision. So I pray that God will help us to develop a thankful heart. Just like scripture is saturated with calls to thanksgiving, So thankfulness ought to permeate our hearts and overflow into our lives. It ought to be something that people see in us every moment of every day. Thankfulness to God for his goodness and kindness toward us. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all that we need?